Hello. Hi. Uh, so this is the weirdest thing. I'm Scotty Milder. I'm Amelia Ampuero. We're your hosts. If I sound at all grumpy, it's just because I'm fucking sick of the summer. Well, if I sound at all grumpy, it's because I'm fucking sick of America's healthcare system. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. People who aren't vaccinated. Guys, yeah. unvaccinated folks, you're bothering everybody. <laughs> um, so get vaccinated. Stop clogging up the hospitals. Don't be dumb. And that's it. That's the end of that rant. That's the, that's that's yeah, the end of no, my I'm, first rant. <laughs> I'm 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 with you. I'm just like I have no energy because my house is fucking 18 million degrees right now, and I don't have air conditioning. And I know it's like not technically summer; it's mid September, but that makes warm, it even though. worse. It would be uncomfortable without air conditioning in my house. Yeah, I so think I get my it. house is like 97 degrees right now, or something. Anyway. Um, oh shit sorry yeah. scotty that sucks <laughs> yeah that sucks really bad yeah and on top of that my allergies have been like i woke up in the middle of the night last night mm. uh coughing and hacking and of course i was like oh my what god if we COVID. just turned this into a podcast where we just talk about our various medical ailments yeah like i'm like my big toe hurts and you're like my agita is acting up today <laughs> my psoriasis and yeah. then we just talk about the weirdest things that are happening within our bodies yeah no, I, I did have a total like COVID panic, though, at like two in the morning. And then very quickly, of course, I did what every like hyper imaginative, anxious person to do is I got on WebMD and started reading symptoms and pretty mm-hmm. quickly was like, no, it's allergies. I'm fine. But yeah. yeah, I'm just like, just fucking like this season just need like I want snow. I want cold. want to be able to not just wear gym shorts and Tevas everywhere I go. <laughs> There's a, a person that I follow on Twitter, which uh, if you don't follow them, I, I mean, maybe they're not your style, but I love them so much. They're called Witty Idiot. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he, I, I, I think it's a, he, he posted something the other day where he was like, it was basically like, I'm re- like, can it was like, can all my witches get into the forest and fucking make <laughs> fall happen? And he was yeah. like, I'm tired of hot girl summer. I want to be cozy and sad. You know, <laughs> I think he was like, I'm sick of being sweaty and sad. I want to be yeah. cozy and sad. <laughs> And yeah. I was like, yeah, I think I think a lot of us are there with you right yeah, now. Yeah, and I mean, I don't particularly want to be sad, but I'd sure like to be cozy. I mean, I'll be like cozy and grumpy, which is sort of my typical state. So yeah, um, you'll okay, just be, you'll be grumpy in a sweatshirt. Yeah, grumpy in a sweatshirt with like a mug of hot cocoa. Yeah, that's that's what I want right now. Right on. Okay, let's let this thing rip. Cool. So I think you're going first. No, am I? Yes, I'm going first. <laughs> I was unprepared. <laughs> okay. I 100% thought I was going second. Um, uh, so give me a sec. Edit all this bullshit out while nope. I figure out my shit. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> darn it. Um, okay. Hold on. Hold, please. I've got too many windows open. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. 
I mean, right. I could go first, but no, it's okay. I just don't, <laughs> I just was unprepared. My story is like at the bottom. Okay, awesome. So there's no cold open for me today. Um, mm-hmm. I am just going to talk to you about some of the stories behind some of the most iconic photos ever taken. Yeah. Um, there is literally no way for me to list all of the sources that I used in this, <laughs> but know that they are essentially uh, some big players were Wikipedia, Time Magazine all that's interesting yeah, and then like every other website on the internet. Oh, I want to give a special shout out to codex99.com and I'll explain why later, but okay. So yeah. So what I'm going to do is just take some photos. I think they're some of the most iconic photographs. They're ones that frequently end up on the most like 100 most famous photos of all time. I'm sticking to ones that are slightly more modern because there are photos from like the 1800s when it's Mm -hmm. like the first photograph of a human. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But we're not going to do those. There was also so many. I started making a list of all the photos I wanted to talk about. And the list is so long that I think I've got at least another one, if not two episodes out of this. So, you know, later on, we might get another one of these. Okay. I'm going to send the first picture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the picture to Scotty. Scotty, if you know the name of the picture, don't like say it right away. Just give us, give the listeners a description of the photo. I just sent you the first one. Ah, yes, I know this photo. So it's a young woman. She's wearing, I'm I, I'm reluctant to say what she's wearing because I never feel like I get this right. It's an Islamic can, garb. It's, it's, is it a hijab or a hajib? See, um, this is why I don't like to say it. Cause I, yeah, I, I mean, know. she's wearing, she's wearing a head covering. A head covering. Uh, that is just sort of like wrapped like around kind of her a faces. Burgundy style head covering she's got the most striking green eyes that you could ever imagine and she's just looking very very intensely at the camera right like directly down the barrel of the camera right kind of with like a real like sort of like what the fuck are you doing kind of look up Right. Yeah. The the photograph is like pretty striking in composition. You can see, like Scotty said, she's got this sort of like reddish head wrap around her. You can also see she's got holes in that wrap. So you can see that whatever she's wearing underneath is green and she is in front of a green backdrop, like, mm-hmm. like whatever she's in front of is green as well. And then her yeah. eyes are very striking green. So it's like, you know, she's got dark brown hair. Compositionally, it's like, it really is kind of a stunning photograph. Mm-hmm. This picture is called known. No, I believe it's a officially titled as Afghan girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, the photographer is a man named Steve McCurry. So in 1984, Steve McCurry was a photojournalist. He was working for National Geographic and he was based in Pakistan during the early years of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And during that time, he went into an all girls school in a, I believe it was in a refugee camp. Yes. And he snaps this picture of this eight-year-old girl. She's eight by the way, in this Wow, photo. she's eight in this photo? I thought she's she was... I mean, eight she, years old. She looks like 13 or something. Yeah, but. she's eight years old in this photo, and she has oh. these piercing green eyes. She's looking straight into the camera. The picture would end up on the cover of National Geographic the following year, and like pretty much immediately it became this like Western symbol for Afghanistan mm-hmm. and sort of like the Middle East as a whole. Like it mm-hmm. was like, it yeah. was like refuge, like it became the symbol for like the Middle East, for Afghanistan, for refugees for war, all of these things. Defiance in the face of oppression. I know that that is brought up a lot. Right, right. And and it would go on to become one of the most famous pictures ever taken, as was evidenced by Scotty when he was like, oh, I know this picture. Yeah. Well, I can, I'll let you finish, but I've got a little bit of backstory. 
just from my relationship with this picture. So McCurry, depending on what you read or who you believe, either like didn't care to learn her name or Mm -hmm. he just like simply didn't record it. Yeah. Although like it would not be discovered until much, much, much later. The young girl's name is Sharbat Gula. Mm -hmm. McCurry got a lot of fame and recognition for this photo. He won prizes. I believe he won prizes for it. Uh, And, and, you know, like we were saying, it's become one of the most recognizable portraits ever taken. McCurry attempted to learn Gula's identity in the 1990s, but he was unsuccessful. And then in 2002, McCurry and National Geographic went back to Afghanistan to try to find her again. They'd sort of found out that she was no longer in Pakistan, that she was back in Afghanistan. She is Afghan, by the way. She's not mm-hmm. originally from Pakistan. Right. They searched a lot of refugee camps for her and they, they ended up finding a ton of women that were like, that's 100% me. That's me in the photo. And also a lot of men that were like yeah i married her okay (laughs) so like everyone's trying to claim to be yeah which is a common theme that you're gonna find in a lot of these stories she eventually was found in a remote part of afghanistan and her identity was confirmed using iris recognition oh wow isn't that nuts? That's crazy. Like I knew that they had confirmed her identity, but like mm-hmm. I because isn't like the iris like this is like new technology where it's basically like more accurate even than fingerprints, I think. I am not sure, but I mean Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's I, like, go sold. It. Yeah, let's go with that idea. It's interesting, though, too, because years later, maybe in, in 2022, or I'm sorry, not <laughs> 2022 doesn't happen. 2002, <laughs> when they found her again, I think he took another portrait of her. Mm-hmm. And she is like, I think, 32, 33 in the photo. Like um, she she definitely looks older than mm-hmm. her, her actual age, uh, much like she does in the original picture. But her eyes also look different, I think. Yeah. And maybe it's, maybe, you know, there's been some talk that McCurry sort of altered a lot of his photographs, that he like mm-hmm. enhanced them. Uh, so maybe that's kind of what's going on. But mm-hmm. I think her, I think her eyes look different. Okay. So they identify her using iris recognition. It's also in 2002 that Gula sees Afghan girl for the first time. Mm. Like she's never seen this picture of her before. Interesting. And she's asked if she remembers having her picture taken. And she's like, yes, because it's one of three times that I've had my picture taken. Oh, wow. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, I get it. I like, yeah, I remember that real well. Again, like I mentioned, he photographed her again in 2002. And um, when she was asked how she felt about having her picture taken, she replied that she was angry. Mm-hmm. So jump forward to 2019 and we have a vlogger and a professional photographer named Tony Northrup. And he like remembers looking at this cover of National Geographic. It had it was a major influence on him. And so he was like, oh, I want to look into this story. So he starts looking into it. And the way he says it is that what he learned about this, the picture and how it was taken and all that stuff is that it's a lot darker. Mm. But I think, I think if you, I think kind of like if you know anything about anything, the story is not really that shocking. Yeah. Um, so basically he says that McCurry was a total stranger dealing with a girl of traditional Pashtun culture mm-hmm. who got her to reveal her face. There are other pictures of her. If you Google Afghan girl, there are other pictures of her where she is holding up her face covering um, mm-hmm. and, and it, like she's looking at yeah, him I've still. Seen but so very like got, suspiciously. Yeah. Yeah. She's like McCurry 
got her to reveal her face. He got her to share space with a man that she didn't know or wasn't related to. Got her to make eye contact. Like all of these things that just very much went against the rules that her culture dictates. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, like, regardless of whatever it is that you think about that culture, like it's still her culture and those are still the rules that she's living under. Mm -hmm. Um, And to go in there and sort of be like, well, in the Western world, we do things differently is just I I think that's what I mean when I'm like, it's not really that shocking. Like, of course he did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, of course he was like, let me let me take you into the civilized world. Yeah. He poses her like a model. Like that's the thing mm-hmm. is that she's like, you know, she's like kind of looking over. I just did it. He, she's kind of like looking over her shoulder. She's lit really beautifully mm-hmm. and she's an eight year old child. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's your sort of basic Western man meets Eastern woman well, and, and does what he thinks well, is best. What's interesting. Like, so like I said, I have a little bit of backstory with this photo. Actually, I was a journalism major in college and oh, we, yeah. we studied this photo and this would have been the mid. 90s mid to late 90s mm-hmm. uh, we studied this in a photojournalism class or it was either my photojournalism class or might have been my media ethics class mm. and basically discussing exactly what you just talked about which was this idea both the questions about whether the photo was in any way manipulated and this mm-hmm. was before the photo of her as an adult came right. out where you said her eyes are different mm-hmm. but there are already questions about uh, specifically about her eyes, whether he had done anything to manipulate her eyes. Right. And this very question came up about, you know, the the intrusion of this photographer yeah. into her space and this kind of, and kind of commodifying her image in this disrespectful way, which is interesting when you think about it, because like I said, these were discussions we were having in media ethics classes and probably around 1998. So yeah. it's like, this isn't like new, like woke, you know, whatever, like this, this is something that people have been talking about, about this specific photo for a really long time. Yeah. And it's something that comes up with photojournalism a lot. Like, do mm-hmm. we have the right to go into these spaces? A big one. I'm not going to talk about this photo, but it's, oh, and I'm not remembering where it is, but it's the, it's the young child and, and she's like hunched over and she's pretty skeletal and there's like a vulture in the background. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, a, that's another one. I, we probably talked about that in the same class. Yeah, yeah, and the story behind that is also pretty tragic, which is why I'm not going to talk about it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's something that comes up about like, what is the responsibility of photojournalists in mm-hmm. these situations? So I'm like, that's cool that you all talked about it. Well, uh, and especially I think at that point, part of what we were talking about was this idea that like there were other photos he could have used of her where she was covering her face, where she wasn't yeah. looking directly at him. Mm-hmm. You know, he chose the one that sort of violated the most cultural norms that he could have yeah. kind of yeah. for his own purposes. I mean, this would be the criticism of him. I'm not right. Like I, I have mixed feelings on it myself. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's something that we can get into a little bit. Cause you know, like I said, this is something that comes up a lot, Yeah, but apparently McCurry wanted to take more pictures of her, but she ran off again. She's an eight year old girl. Right. Um, when Gula saw the cover for the first time, she said it made her nervous and very sad. Mm-hmm. She was arrested in 2016 in Pakistan of fraudulent identity. She served 15 days in prison. Wow. I can't imagine 15 days in a, in a prison in Pakistan was like, easygoing. Um, And then she got deported back to Afghanistan. Mm. She blames McCurry's photo for her arrest saying, quote, the photo created more problems than benefits. It made Mm -hmm. me famous, but it also led to my imprisonment. I wonder if she was one of the people who was able to get out in the recent evacuations. 
Oh God. I don't know. Yeah. And everything that I see about her is talking about this photo. I haven't seen anything pretty much after they talked to her in like 2002. Northrop says that McCurry usually charges around $18,000 for 20 by 24 inch prints of Afghan girl and larger prints have gone for as much as Mm $178,000 at auction. And of course, Gula has received none of that, uh, Mm -hmm. which is, which is also par for the course. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's not anything. Well, that's where like it gets out to me, the ethics of it get real sticky because it gets outside of you know photojournalism is what it is you know you're capturing real life it's going to end up in a newspaper or magazine and then you know the photojournalists should move on for them to be then turning it around and selling it as like a fine art piece right that feels real weird to me right and the flip side of that is and let's not get too into it but the flip side of that is the adult man who was the baby on the cover of the of nirvana's album and that he's like you know i'm owed for that because it's a picture of me Mm -hmm. yeah it's and yeah uh, that that's a sticky wicket i don't know know if i want to dive into that just yet yeah Wikipedia says that after finding Gula in 2002, National Geographic covered the costs of medical treatment for her family and for a pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. And that's that's kind of the last thing that's known about her. Mm, Okay. So that's the story of Afghan girl. Okay. Hold on. Let me pull up the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to make sure I send this one in the right thread. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So can you describe? Yeah. I I actually don't think I've seen this one before. It's uh, really. Okay. No, yeah, it's some it's it's a naked dude. Uh, it's black and white photo. He's like sort of three quarters turned away from the camera. Nice, nice, nice shot of his butt. Um, he's in he's in what looks like a, a military helicopter. He's got the headsets on. And mm-hmm. I think he's standing, it looks like, by a big chain gun. So it looks like some sort of military photo of a soldier who just happens to be naked. Yes, yes. This is the naked gunner. It's a picture taken by Horace Bristol in 1944. So okay. like Scotty says, it's a young man. He's standing at the gun in the blister of a the craft that he's in is actually a consolidated pby catalina plane and he is naked except for a headset and some rather impressive tan lines Mm -hmm. like yeah he's been spending some time in the sun in his Mm -hmm. in his his little short shorts right that's the thing too is that like it's it's very they're very short Um, very very daisy dukes kind of yeah so horace bristol was a u.s naval aviation photographer and on february 19th 1944 first lieutenant robert a schaefer got shot down while he was bombing the japanese held fortress of i don't know if it's rabal or rabul it's off the coast of papua new guinea okay schaefer spent 25 hours in the water he's covered in serious burns. He's exhausted. He's suffering from exposure and he's near death. Mm. So the Catalina Bristol was rescuing downed bombers in in Rabul Bay when they spotted Schaefer and he's like temporarily blinded. He's in the water and they were like, all right, we got to go grab him. So the crew stripped off all of their clothes and their boots because there was no way for them. Like they knew if they jumped in with everything that they weren't going to be able to swim, that they just like sink. Mm -hmm. So they got naked. Yeah. 
as you do. I'm also, I was also like, are y'all not wearing, were you not wearing any underwear or were you I just mean, like, fuck it, undies too? Like, let's rock and roll. Clearly this dude isn't, so. Yeah. So they strip up all their clothes. They jump into the water. They grab Schaefer. They throw him back onto the plane and they keep it moving because they were also under attack from the Japanese at this mm. point. Because they were under attack, the men on the plane returned to their spots without getting dressed and leaving the perfect shot available to <laughs> Bristol. Yeah. The picture ended up on the front page of the Dayton Journal Herald and everybody was like this is somebody's ass like you put it's 19, you put it's 1944 like yeah. women are barely allowed to show ankles at this point and you've put somebody's full ass on the front page of the Dayton Journal Herald <laughs> I love that it's the Dayton <laughs> like the specificity of it being a Dayton of all places <laughs> I was trying to give it kind of a Dallas Morning News yeah. uh, uh, emphasis for all you west wing fans yeah (laughs) from friend of the pod west wing so yeah everybody's like super scandalized the picture continues to live in heads rent free for obvious reasons (laughs) and the name he's a good looking man yeah he's he's got a little mustache he's a good looking dude uh and it's just so like fuck yeah america you know what i mean like i mean he's very like kind of chris evans captain america kind of vibe happening yeah 100 percent it's yeah, like that's the picture we should all be celebrating like on the 4th of July or whatever <laughs> yeah. the fuck. Um, <laughs> so like I said, it continues to live in heads rent-free and the naked gunner has never been identified. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess Horace was just like, I don't I don't know who was on well, the plane. Like, I don't know what was going on. We just rescued a dude. I have no idea. Yeah, so that's interesting. That, I've never yep. seen that one before. I cannot believe you haven't seen that one before. Mm-mm. Okay, I'm, if you haven't, I know you've seen this one. If you say you haven't, I'm going to be shocked. Oh, right. yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know this one. Okay. So it's uh, it's another black and white photo. It's a very beautiful mm-hmm. woman who seems to be sleeping on what either could be like a very silky bed, like with the sheets, like kind of rippled mm-hmm. or crumpled metal. Mm-hmm. And she's wearing what looks like some sort of evening gown. And she looks very peaceful, like she's just kind of dozed off. Yeah. This is the most beautiful suicide. Um, mm-hmm. Trigger warning, we'll be talking uh, about suicide here. Let's jump into it. Uh, so the picture was taken by Robert Wiles. It was taken in 1947. The woman in the picture is Evelyn McHale. She was one of eight children from Berkeley, California. She ended up moving to New York after her parents split up, and she was actually living in Baldwin, New York with, I believe her sister and brother-in-law, but it might have been her brother and sister-in-law when she met Barry Rhodes, who she would later become engaged to. They planned to get married in June of 1947. On May 1st, Evelyn arrived in New York City after spending the night with Rhodes. He said that she, like, she frequently talked after they, like, got together and became engaged. He said that she frequently talked about how she worried that she wasn't going to be a good wife to him Mm -hmm. like it it was it like it came up a lot um and he was always like no no you're gonna be like it's gonna be great we're gonna get married and we're gonna have a wonderful life together he did say that like while she had talked about it the night before she left him that morning in seemingly good spirits Mm. i think she took like this the 7 a.m train from and i did not write down where they actually were but she took the 7 a.m train into new york city Mm. and when she got there she went to the empire state building She bought a ticket to the 86th floor observation deck. She went Mm -hmm. up there, removed her coat, folded it, and placed it neatly over the railing along with a handwritten note. 
and jumped. Yeah. Allegedly, a security guard was standing just 10 feet away from her when she climbed over the railing. Wow. Yeah. After falling over 1,000 feet, her body landed on a parked UN limousine. Mm, okay. Robert Wiles was a photography student and he took the photo just four minutes after her death. Wow. This picture has been compared to Malcolm Wilde Brown's picture of the self-immolating monk that he took in 1963. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. It's sort of talked about like, these are the two definitive pictures of suicide. Yeah. Which is like a dark. Wow. Well, there's so. Oh, to be in. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that they're mentioned kind of in the same breath because they're so different. Like, yeah, you know, one is obviously a guy on fire. And then this one, it is. It's very like it's very peaceful. Yeah. Until you yeah. look close and you see like all the like the tops of the heads of all the dudes standing on the other side of the car. And you realize that's not a bed. That's a car. Right. And like, she's wearing like a, like a day suit. She's got pearls. She's wearing gloves. And like, I think it's Mm -hmm. her left hand is sort of like up. It almost looks like she's kind of like clutching her pearls. She's got what looks to be like a full face of makeup on. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So Time Magazine actually devoted a full page to this photo with the caption that read at the bottom of the Empire State Building, the body of Evelyn McHale reposes calmly in grotesque buyer, her fall body punched into the top of a car. Mm-hmm. Evelyn was the 12th person to jump from the Empire State Building and only the sixth to clear all the setbacks. Oh. So the setbacks for anybody who doesn't know, I didn't know either. The setbacks are like essentially stairs that taper the right. like the like width of a building as it climbs up. It's actually done so that like in a city where there's a lot of skyscrapers, so that the whole city isn't in shadow. It's yeah. done at specifically to let light in, which I had no idea about. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. So apparently there were other people who didn't clear the setbacks when Mm. they jumped, Um, but she, she cleared all of them. And there are at least, I think, I mean, there's a couple. She was also one of five people who had jumped in like a three week period. Mm. So the Empire State Building was like, oh, we should maybe do something about this. And they put up the 10-foot wire mesh yeah. fence after that. Photos of the Empire State Building before they put that up are fucking creepy because people are just standing out on the observation deck and mm-hmm. the, the wall comes to like probably maybe mid-chest height on me. Like yeah. there is nothing to prevent you from just being like, Bye. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a couple of those pictures. It is. I mean, it's that type of thing where it's like, why didn't they think about it? But it's like, Mm -hmm. why would you until someone does it? It's the same with like the Golden Gate Bridge, you know? Precisely. Um, Yeah. They weren't, they just weren't thinking about it until unfortunately it was too late. Yeah. And there's a new structure that I'm not remembering the name of in New York right now that's sort of shaped like a weird, like honeycomb. And it had, it had like three people jump with, in like a year of it opening and then they Mm. closed it for COVID and they opened it back up and somebody jumped again. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have to do something about that place. Yeah. Like it just seems to be the problem. It's the same thing with the golden gate bridge is Mm -hmm. once it becomes known as a spot, then it becomes a magnet. Yeah. So it becomes kind of self-fulfilling. Yeah. Evelyn, like I mentioned, she did leave a note and the note said, 
I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? I Mm. beg you and my family don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. These next couple of sentences, she went like she wrote them down and then she went back and crossed them out. My fiance asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I'd make a good wife for anybody. He's much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. So she wrote Mm. the lines about her fiance, crossed them out, and then ended it with tell my father. I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Yeah. There's a backstory there. Her sister identified the body and Mm. in keeping with her wishes, there was no memorial, no service, no grave. And her body was, was cremated. Her fiance, Barry Rhodes died in Florida in October of 2007. He never married Mm. and Robert Wiles never published another photograph. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if I, you know, you said he was a photography student. Yeah. Like if this was my first big photo and it went national and and then you're finding out that like she didn't want anyone to see her and like, like I would, I don't know. I don't want to like say what was going on in his head, but that would maybe, I don't know, interfere with my desire to pursue that as a career path. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. There is a really great write-up of everything that's known about Evelyn, which is not a lot, but they did as much digging as they could. They also found a lot of pictures of her from genealogy websites and that, uh, so a lot of like a great write-up of, of everything that they know about her and the day that she jumped off the Empire State Building. And that is on the website codex99.com and it's mm. codex 99.com. It's probably, it goes the most in depth into what is known about her life. So if you're interested in all in learning a little bit more about that photo, check it out. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, this one, obviously I think most of us have seen it's, I mean, I guess I'll just say it's like clearly outside of the world trade center. Mm Mm-hmm. It's uh looks like a man wearing kind of a light colored maybe jacket, dark pants. He's inverted and one leg is kind of cocked, almost like at a like a like a goose steppy angle as he's like clearly falling from uh a great height. Yes. This photo is the falling man. It was mm-hmm. taken by Richard Drew on September eleventh. 2001. Yeah. So on September 11th, 2001, Richard Drew, he was an AP photographer and he was shooting, of all things, a maternity fashion show at Bryant Park. Oh, wow. Uh, And that's what he was doing when the two planes hit the World Trade Center towers. Some, I saw some sources that said that his editor was like, hey, two planes just hit the World Trade Center. And other sources that said that another photographer was like, hey, two planes just hit the World Trade Center. So not super clear about that. But Drew immediately took the subway to the Chambers Street subway station and emerged into mayhem. Yeah. He looked up to see people falling from the buildings and instinct kicked in. So he started pointing his camera at the people falling and just basically held the shutter down. I believe if I am like remembering this correctly, he was not even looking through the viewfinder of his camera. He was just like pointing them at the people and kind of like following them. Yeah. I don't think you'd be able to look through the viewfinder with an image like that small. Yeah. He estimates that there are about 10 to 12 sequences of about eight to 10 people falling Mm. before he was forced to evacuate because the South Tower was 
collapsing. Coming down. Yeah. Yeah. I saw somewhere and I could like, when I was going back to actually write the story, I couldn't find where I had found it, but I feel like I saw somewhere that he was following the falling man down. And when he realized how it was going to end, that's when he like stopped taking photos. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So he was like yeah. going, going, going. And then he was like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to see how this ends. And I need, I need to stop right. taking pictures of this. The New York Times published the photo on September 12th, 2001. Mm-hmm. And Drew said it was, quote, it was the only picture that was like that. The only picture that showed any kind of human interaction with the building like that. Mm. It ended up being published in a lot of newspapers in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, but every paper that published it received hundreds of letters calling the picture like cold-blooded, ghoulish, sadistic. Folks were like, I don't want my children to see pictures like that. I mean, I remember, I don't know if it was specifically about this photo, but I remember that controversy in the days after Mm -hmm. about a lot of the images. Yeah. After September 12th, the picture basically vanished and Mm -hmm. it wasn't seen again until at least 2003. Mm -hmm. And I believe that was in an an article in Esquire called The Falling Man. Okay. Drew says, quote, people ask how I could cold-bloodedly photograph someone dying. I never saw it that way. I made a photographic record of someone living the last moments of his life. And every time I look at it, I see him alive. Um, He also said, Quote, one editor who objected to my photo said, Americans don't want to look at pictures of death and dying over their morning cornflakes. I disagree. I think they're fine with it as long as the victims aren't American. Mm, that That's absolutely true. Yeah. He talks about how he's friends with the photographer who took the picture of the girl who'd just been burned by napalm. And she's like, mm. it's a young girl and she's naked and she's like running down the street. Right. And Vietnam. he was like, that yeah. photo was on the news. It was on, it was in newspapers. It was everywhere, but it didn't matter because she wasn't American. Yeah. We had no problems with it. Right. Yeah, and I it's mean, a he, much like, more, right. <laughs> it's a much more graphic image than this one. Much significantly. Yeah. Several attempts have been made to identify the falling man. It's believed like the closest we can kind of the not we because I just I'm just writing a story about this, but people who have right. like who've looked into it believe that he is one of two men. And that's either Norberto Hernandez, who was a pastry chef at Windows of the World, which is the restaurant like at the top of the, mm-hmm. of the North Tower. Yeah, or, I had been there when I was a kid. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <sighs> or Jonathan Briley, who was a sound engineer at Windows of the World. Oh, okay. Um the clothing of the falling man, which like you said, is black pants and shoes a white shirt or jacket or tunic the white over garment eventually falls away from his body to reveal an orange undershirt um and like his clothing has been reviewed by families of both men hernandez's families swear that he didn't own an orange undershirt i believe his wife was also like i saw him the day that he got like i saw him that day i i laid out his clothes for him i know what he was wearing and it wasn't an orange undershirt Mm -hmm. while briley's family said that he wore an orange undershirt so often that they like teased him about it Mm. So, I mean, that, it's not definitive, but. Right. Yeah. This is a thing that comes up with Hernandez's family as well, but many families of like, quote unquote, jumpers struggled with identifying their family members because of the belief in like Christian religion that suicide is a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But however, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office refused to classify those who jumped out of the World Trade Towers that day as jumpers. The office considered them people forced by tragic circumstances rather than those who'd like planned to jump to their deaths. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, classifying this as suicide, they were forced out by the flames and the smoke. Like, Right. I also believe that the Pope, and I don't know which one, but the Pope was also like, no, like these are not, none of them died by suicide. Interesting. Yeah. He sort of like made a blanket. Yeah. I just, Um, not, not to like stigmatize people who have taken their own lives, but I don't, I just doesn't seem like you can classify this as suicide in any classic sense. Right. Right. So that has like provided problems. It has been my understanding from the stuff that I've read that, like I said, Hernandez's family really sort of like struggled with that. And that was Mm -hmm. why they were, it seems like that was also an issue with them wanting to claim him as that. But I mean, evidence to it being Jonathan Briley also seems a little bit more, I mean, I don't know. Side note, Drew's pictures that he was taking, like I mentioned, he took pictures of other people who were falling from the buildings and he actually helped another man identify his wife. I think she was, did she also work at window of the worlds? I'm not remembering. They were able to identify a fragment of a bone of hers Mm. in the aftermath of it. And he didn't know what happened to her. So he went to drew to like, look through the pictures and thinks thinks that a a woman called, she's called like the, the, the series is called the falling woman that that's, that that's her. And he actually like her husband was like, this actually gives me a lot of peace Yeah, to like know what happened to her. Right. Riley's body was discovered the next day, although there is no clear record, at least that I can find of like, if he was found with any clothing on him or anything like that, yeah. if anything was like recognizable in that way. And it appears that Hernandez's body has never been recovered or identified. Last note about this story. Drew is no stranger to photographing death. This is another thing that he talks about a lot when, when people like sort of like wag their finger at him for, for taking these photos. He was standing directly behind Bobby Kennedy when he was shot by Sirhan Sirhan in 1968. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. yeah, he's had a front row seat to a lot yeah. of shit, which I think is the other thing that makes me be like, why were you photographing a maternity fashion show? Well, you know, got to pay the bills, I guess. Do what you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. And he talks about like Bobby Kennedy's blood, like splattering on him. Cause he was yeah. like right behind him. Drew was 21 years old wow. when that happened. Yeah. Wow. And that is the, that's the story of the falling man. All right. We're going to lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's Albert Einstein and he's, he's being a silly little goose. Like he's. <laughs> Sticking his tongue out at the camera, just looking like he's Mm -hmm. having a good time. Yes. So there are a lot of photos of Albert Einstein, but this is sort of one of the, like, if if not one of the most, perhaps, or sorry, if not one, if not the only one of the only like silly photos Mm -hmm. of him, this picture was taken by Arthur. I have no idea how to say this name. I don't know if it's sass, sassy, sasse, it's S-A-S-S-E. I think it's Um, sass. And I only say that just because I know there's a uh, Senator Ben Sass. Okay, fantastic. That's what we're going to so. that's what we're going to go with. So Arthur Sass, uh he took this photo on March 14th, 1951. Like Scotty said it's a black and white photo of Einstein, his hair is a little disheveled and he's like looking at the camera sticking his tongue out. So on March 14th, 1951, Albert Einstein, who if you don't 
know who Albert Einstein <laughs> is. He's a famed theoretical physicist. Yep. Uh, and he was leaving his seven, his 72nd birthday party at Princeton University. The party had been like swarming with photographers all night. Einstein was tired and maybe like, you know, even a little cranky after having to like yeah. pose for picture after picture that night. And as he was leaving the party, he was climbing into the backseat of the car between Dr. Frank Adelote, Adelote and Frank's wife, Maria Jeanette. And the like, as he was getting into the backseat of this car, the photographers are still like, you know, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein. Like they're yelling, they're still <laughs> yelling at him. And he's like, oh my God, oh my God. I'm, I'm, I'm fucking 72 years old. Like, yeah. please leave me alone. So apparently Einstein reportedly yelled, that's enough, that's enough. <laughs> but the photographers kept hounding him. So Einstein stuck his tongue out and Sass caught the moment perfectly. That's great. He said that Einstein immediately turned his head away right after the picture was snapped and like they made their getaway. <laughs> Einstein actually loved this picture of him. He requested from the United Press International. That's the outfit that Sass was working for. He wrote to UPI and was like, could I get nine copies of this photo? Because <laughs> I want to make like some little personalized greeting cards. Nice. And he, he like cropped it so that it was just his face. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he used them as like personal greeting cards. I mean, it is a super endearing picture 100 percent yeah like it's it's an it's an adorable little photo of a little yeah. man sticking his tongue out yeah um only one copy remained intact that he like didn't crop einstein signed that photo and in 2017 it sold at auction for one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. wow yeah That's i cool. i have a soft spot for that photo as well because i feel like if my father was to grow out his hair he would kind of look like einstein i i, I almost said it and then i was like i didn't know if i wanted to say it but like he, he reminds me of your dad yeah <laughs> yeah so that i mean it's probably doubly why that photo is is so endearing to me yeah um okay let's send next photo so you know a short little sweet story after some of the darker ones although we're not quite done with dark just yet i don't believe oh okay yeah <laughs> I mean, this is like obviously one of the most famous photos ever taken. It's uh, Streets of New right. York City. Uh, mm -hmm. Looks like the mid 1940s, obviously. Mm -hmm. And a very happy sailor man has grabbed a somewhat startled looking nurse and is kissing her quite, <laughs> quite, uh, quite passionately. Quite appears. passionately. Yes. Yeah. So there's a couple of different titles for this. One's called VJ Day and the other is mm -hmm. called the kiss it's yep. a photograph that was taken by alfred eisenstadt and it was taken on august 14th 1945 so on so what was going on that day was that the u.s was essentially waiting for president truman to make a speech announcing that the war with japan was over right and he was scheduled to make that announcement that speech at around 7 p.m in the evening and as everybody was waiting for it sort of a spontaneous celebration broke out because it Right. That was like the end of World it was, War II. It was like we were done. fucking done. Yeah. yeah. And so everybody just was like, woohoo, and started celebrating, uh, which I understand. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the spontaneous celebration broke out in the streets of New York City, although probably honestly, like in other places as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and so Eisenstadt like took to the streets to record this celebration. And he was running down the street ahead of a sailor who, according to Eisenstadt, was grabbing any and every female he could get his hands on <laughs> young old thin not thin like didn't matter he was grabbing every single woman he could find and just planting one right on her face i mean it sounds like he might have been doing a little bit of day drinking just <laughs> gonna speculate yeah. but again i mean he's a sailor like why not yeah. man the war is over yeah um <laughs> 
<laughs> so Eisenstadt is like watching him do this. And he, like I said, he's running in front of him, like keeping an eye like over his shoulder, waiting to take the perfect photo. Cause he knew this was going to provide a, a great shot if he could grab it. Mm-hmm. So like I said, he's, he's running in front of them. And then out of the corner of his eye, Eisenstadt sees the sailor grab. It just said, grab something white. so eisenstadt turns around and rattled off about four pictures of the moment that they kissed and Mm -hmm. he said quote if she'd had on a dark dress i would never have taken the photo if he'd been in a white uniform i wouldn't have taken the photo yeah the contrast of their clothing was like part of what made the shot yeah also i will say and we'll get into this a little bit later but that picture is the one like there's another one where you can see her her fist kind of like swinging towards his face (laughs) and he's kind of like got her in a headlock like when you look at the photo you're like oh man but then when you start to look at it a little more closely you're like well, I think that's why I was like, she looks startled. And I think yeah. maybe I've seen some of those other pictures. So I'm bringing that. <laughs> yeah. She also, it's like, you know, everybody thought that she was, you know, like a nurse. She was actually, I believe, like a dental hygienist. Oh, okay. But still, you know, she's in a white uniform and everybody was like, yay, America. So yeah. almost immediately after he'd taken the photograph, Eisenstadt took out a copyright on the photos mm-hmm. and he went on to like carefully monitor its usage from that point on, Mm. like he was very specific about where he would allow the image to be used, who used it, all of those things. Well, he knew he had taken an iconic. Yeah. But he's not the only photographer who caught that image. There's another photographer by the name of Victor Jorgensen who caught it from a slightly different angle. And his photo has always been within the public domain. It's Interesting. interesting because if you Google search the image, the one of them that I showed you, which is straight on. And if you notice, like the resolution on that photo is not super great. Mm -hmm. And that's how most of the images of that photo that you can find on the internet are. Mm -hmm. Jorgensen's photos are a lot clearer and it's probably because they're in public domain. Mm, yeah yeah interesting yeah so of course everybody wanted to know who the man and the woman were and of course like you know everything was going nutty so eisenstadt didn't really have a chance to grab their names which again is also another thing that comes up a lot like nobody knows nobody knows anybody that they took a picture of right but it's been difficult to identify the two lawrence varia And George Galderisi wrote a book in 2012 called The Kissing Sailor, where they basically went on a quest to identify the two. Mm. Um, It's believed that the woman is Greta Zimmer Friedman. Um, I will also say that like when they went out to be like, we want to identify these two hundreds of people. Uh, We're like, yep, that's me. That's me. That's me. Yeah, because everyone wants to be part of like the moment, you know. Additionally, apparently also there was a lot of sailors who were just like, fuck it, let's make out that day. <laughs> I mean, because all like not there are there shot. are right, there are a lot of stories of men who were like at the movies with their wives when they got the news and like ran out and were just grabbing everybody, and their wives were like, Oh, uh, so silly. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so like apparently a lot of a lot of sailors were like, fuck, yes, war is over. Yeah. Greta, however, was very clear that she was never asked to be kissed mm-hmm. and that she was like, get off of me. I think she I think she said somewhere that she was like, he did that. And I kind of like socked him and I was like, get off. me. <laughs> she was probably like, get off me, you rug or something like that. Like yeah. one of those sayings from back then. <laughs> she 
would never participate in any recreations of the photo. Like they mm-hmm. tried to get her to do it with some of the guys I've, who said that, and she was like, no. I think I've read that. Not. I mean, and it's that thing where it's like, like we're kind of laughing about it and it's like kind of hard to blame the guy or like any of these guys in that moment but also like you know consent is important and yes 100 well we're gonna come back to that so so yeah. hold your thoughts on that the other woman who it might be is someone named edith Shane. And honestly, she just like kind of decided that she was the woman in the photo. (laughs) And she would like do appearances as the woman in the photo. And she would like pose and meet with men who claimed to be the sailor and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. But the two authors that I mentioned before of uh, The Kissing Soldier, they used interviews with people who were there that day, expert photo analysis, forensic anthropology, and facial recognition. They believe that Gerda is the woman in the photo for a lot of reasons. The least of which is that Edith, the other sort of main candidate, is only 4'10", mm. and she is way too short to be the woman. Yeah, the this photo. this woman's clearly not 4'10", unless he's like... Unless the dude is like 5'2". Five five <laughs> Which is, you know, not impossible, I guess. Not impossible, but... But then, like, everyone else on the street would Also be has to be, five like, 5'2", yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they're sort of like, it's probably really not... Edith, but she's like, do you need me at this like convention? Because I'm there. Uh, but you know, you got to pay the bills, I guess. She found her racket. Yeah. yeah. A lot of men have come forward and claimed to be the sailor, like I mentioned before, but like there's nobody's ever been able to figure out anything conclusive. Well, um, I mean, like, they I, were all running around kissing everybody. It's like they all could like legitimately think they're the sailor. Yeah. And there was even a story of one of them. And I'm sorry, I did not write down his name, but he was like, yo, no, no. Yeah, no. Like, that's me. Like, that's me. And and I know that because my mom saw the picture in the newspaper and she was like, look, it's this picture of you. And then he later was like, wait, I don't know if I actually know that that was me or if it just sort of got drilled into my head by my mom. <laughs> so they're like, oh, okay. Like you sort of mentioned before, like there are a lot of people looking at it now. And even like, you know, even not so currently, but there are people who have looked at this picture and been like, what we're witnessing is an assault. Mm-hmm. A 25 foot vert, like statue was made out of this. And it was like going around to various cities and mm-hmm. it got spray painted with like hashtag me too. Um, I, I kind of remember that. Yeah. I, this is one of those things where I'm like, yes. And, uh, right. and I'm not like, this isn't a thing to be like, it was a different time and all that stuff. I don't know. I don't know what it is like to have been in something like world war two to be a sailor during that time mm-hmm. and to hear that like the war is over it's done yeah and you survived yeah and i don't i don't know how i would celebrate in that moment this is not me being like a fucking raper apologist like don't at me that's not what this is i just i i don't no, know but, where i fall on this particular issue with this particular photograph yeah no i've i've read i mean obviously i've read some of the controversy around it too and i think i knew about the statue and everything and you know and i have seen the other photos in the series where she's clearly kind of like not super happy Mm-hmm. about the situation and like yeah. you know that that like that's important you know that's not to be dismissed yeah. but right. but there is like the specific context of you know the end of this bloody world war and you know this guy who probably thought he didn't know like how long he was going to live if he got shipped out and right you know and it's i have a hard time truly faulting him in terms of feeling like there was bad intent there 
same yeah, I time. Think, I think, yeah, I think that's my thing is that like, and I mean, this is solely based on this photo. It's completely right. possible that this dude was a predator outside of this. Right. Oh, he absolutely. Was a horrible guy. 100% possible. But in terms of this photo, I, I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know guys. And I, I it's also a little hard to have dealing with the pandemic and how many times have you and I talked about the fact that it's like, especially when it was like deep, deep isolation, when it was like right. shelter in place, don't fucking go anywhere before the vaccine happened where it was like, once the vaccine happens, I'm just going to like make out with people because mm-hmm. like I've been on my fucking well, own for so long. Yeah. And everyone's been posting stuff like that on Facebook. Yes. Yes. Everybody's doing like, you know, vaxxed and waxed and all that <laughs> stuff. And like, I get it, you know, like humans yeah. need interaction. So yeah, I don't know where I fall on this one. Yeah. I'm, I'm with story. you. I, 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 I can see it both ways. Yeah. That's the story of the kiss. Okay. Here's our next photo. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I know this uh-huh. one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a woman. She looks very worried. She's got two kids who are like kind of they're like leaning on her from each side. Like, you know, they're standing mm-hmm. on either side of her. They look like they're maybe five years old. She's clearly mm-hmm. their mother. She's holding her hands up to her face or one hand up to her face. She looks very concerned. She looks very I don't don't want to be mean, but like weathered would be the word. She does. Clearly mm-hmm very poor mm-hmm. and it's an, it's a black and white photo and obviously mm-hmm. I, i'm trying to talk around it a little bit because i know what the context is but mm-hmm. but i mean it looks like someone in poverty with her kids mm-hmm. looking she's got desperate. another like she's got another baby like an infant cradle oh that's in right her other yeah. arm. Mm-hmm. i didn't even notice that little baby face down there yeah, yeah. this is migrant mother mm-hmm. um dorothea lang took this photo in 1936 the woman in the photo is florence owens thompson she was born in 1903 she's mm-hmm. a migrant worker she was married at 17 widowed by 27 she had 10 kids total but seven wow. at the time of this picture wow mm-hmm. but how old was um, she she was 33 when this picture was taken yeah i mean different time i guess yep yeah different <laughs> yeah, circumstances I, the age of Shardabat Gula and the age of migrant mother. I was like, what? Right. Like I was shocked by both of those. I think I had read from this photo and this is like, I was talking around, but it's obviously a great depression kind of dust bowl mm-hmm. photo. And it's one mm-hmm. everybody has seen. And I think I had read that she, I think I'd read her age at some point And I remember being shocked, but I had forgotten it was that young. Cause yeah. I mean, she looks you know fully in her forties. She looks like like a deep 40 yeah. minimum, not early 30s. No. So yeah, so she, you know, she had a hard life. Yeah, so she had 10 kids total. She ended up having 10 kids total, but she had seven at the time that this photo was taken. Mm-hmm. Um, Thompson, her partner, Jim Hill, and her kiddos were traveling to Watsonville, California yep. when their car broke down and it sort of like coasted into a pea picker camp in, mm. I don't know if it's Napima or Nipomo, Mesa, California. Okay. Any idea? Okay. None. Uh, so none. <laughs> any of our any of our near Nipomo listeners. <laughs> very Correct sorry. us. 
Yeah. <laughs> we just get a flood of emails. Um, <laughs> so while her partner, Jim, and two of her other kids like set off on foot to get parts for the car, Florence set up a little camp. Like, you know, she set up a little tent and they were sitting in there. Okay, so enter Dorothea Lang. Um, mm-hmm. Lang was working for the Resettlement Administration. That was a New Deal agency to relocate struggling urban and rural families to government-planned communities. Mm-hmm. And she was basically wandering around archiving the whole damn thing. So she drives up and she starts taking pictures. Uncharacteristically, Lang, who was like known for taking intense notes about the photos that she took, made no notes of this. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. Lang was at the end of like a month long trip. So I just think bitch was tired. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, I don't, I don't, I don't my, like, like, look, it's a person with some yeah. kids. You get it. Yeah. Like this is, you know, like the 84th time I've like snapped a picture like this. At any rate, she spends about 10 minutes with Florence. She takes about seven pictures. The other pictures in the series, Florence is breastfeeding that infant mm. that I mentioned. She didn't spend a lot of time talking to Florence, didn't grab her name, didn't really ask her a lot about herself and that'll come up later. We'll come back to that. But immediately afterwards, Lang sends the photo of Florence to the San Francisco news before she even sent it back to the resettlement administration. Mm-hmm. She shot it off to the San Francisco news and they publish it with the story that 2,500 to 3,000 immigrants working at Nipomo were starving. Mm-hmm. And then within days, 20,000 pounds of food from the federal government arrived at that pea picker camp. Florence and her family were long gone Mm. by the time the food arrived. The picture is called the ultimate photo of the Depression era. And I think that that's 100%. I mean, this is like when you talk about Depression era photos, this is the first one that comes to mind. Precisely. Uh, The photographs that were taken for the resettlement administration, I think most of them were taken by Dorothea Lang. They're sort of widely heralded as the epitome of documentary photography. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a great photo. Yeah, it's 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 a great photo. Florence goes unknown as the migrant mother until reporter Emmett Corrigan starts poking into the story in about 1978. When mm. he finally found her, Thompson said, quote, I wish she, meaning Lang, hadn't taken my picture. I can't get a penny out of it. She didn't ask me my name. She said she wouldn't sell the pictures. She said she'd send me a copy. She never did. Mm. I mean, also, like, you were in a migrant form. How the fuck was she supposed to find you? Because you didn't stay there. So, but yeah. I get it. <laughs> well, and I mean, it is weird that she didn't ask her for her name or like, like I don't know what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think she was fucking tired. Yeah. I mean, not that that's an excuse, but I think that she was a human being and she was like, I've literally been fought, like I've been photographing the fucking Great Depression mm-hmm. and I've been doing this yeah, this kind of time for the for a month and I'm tired. Yeah, just kind of slipped through the cracks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be on the most iconic photo that she took. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, Lang, because she was a federal employee, she never received any royalties from the image, but it did make her famous. Mm-hmm. In the late 1960s, a man named Bill Hendry found the original unretouched migrant mother photo and 31 other unretouched Lang photos in the dumpster behind the San Jose Chamber of Commerce. What? How? What? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. How, how even? How even does that happen? 
I don't know. And the truth is, is that most of the times what you're seeing now is a retouched version because apparently like I'm trying to like show you on frame that like her left thumb was like sticking up in the corner of the frame and somebody just was like, uh, and, like got rid of it. Like depression era Photoshop. basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But he found the unretouched original photograph. Mm, okay. So he was like, oh, well, let me hold on to these. <laughs> And um, take them out of the dumpster. Let me take them out of the dumpster. And after his death, his daughter, Miriam Tankersley, was like cleaning out her parents' home when she found the 32 pictures again. Mm. The 32 photos were sold like as a lot to an anonymous buyer at auction for $296,000 at Sotheby's. Wow. Yeah. I'd kill to take a look at the other photos in that lot. Um, The image became a stamp in 1998, which is Mm -hmm. weird because usually the USPS waits until 10 years after people have died. But her two kids, two of her kids that are in the photo were still alive when they turned it into a stamp. Mm. So maybe their, maybe their idea is like, you can't see their face or something. I don't know. Maybe where they were like, you're a baby. Nobody can recognize you. I don't know. Yeah. Thompson's 10 kids bought her a lovely home in the 1970s, Mm. but she was more comfortable living living in a mobile home so the house was sold and she moved into a mobile home park Mm. i don't know why that just is like i mean but in a way like you know this photo always makes me think of my grandfather because my grandfather was i don't know where thompson was from i'm not sure you mentioned but you know my grandfather was like dust bowl oklahoma like Mm -hmm. he was he was an okie from oklahoma Mm -hmm. uh, who was riding the rails during the depression looking for work that's how he ended up in los alamos for the manhattan project i talked Mm -hmm. about it some in the demon core episode right so i just think of like him you know like he came out of this world and like there is something like just so unostentatious so not like he was he was always just happy Happiest, like put him out on his little metal fishing boat mm, yeah let him go fish in the mornings you know like he and my grandmother lived in a mobile home up in uh colorado for years and years and yeah. years um yeah it was like and it was like a nice little retiree kind of mobile home park you know yeah they, and they had you know they had traveled around with a little airstream for a long time but it was just like that it's easy to i don't know romanticize that era or people who come out of that time period right but there, was i think something of that generation just like a comfort and simplicity right and i think it's a thing of like not being used to quote-unquote luxury of any kind and like luxury meaning like a a house yeah you know like these were i mean she was a migrant worker right you know she was going from place to place you know migrant migrant work was and remains not a cushy job no no Um, not at all yeah, she was born in Oklahoma. Okay, so I, th- I was thinking she was an Okie too, because mm-hmm. I always associate this photo with my grandfather. Yeah, and the 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 beginning part of her biography on the Wikipedia article, which you can go and look up, it says that both of her parents claimed Cherokee descent. That. Mm-hmm. Um, Cherokee Nation tribal records indicate that her father's blood quantum was either full blood or one half. That is something that I don't know enough about to speak on. Right. But yeah, all of that to say she was from Oklahoma, from Oklahoma. 
Yeah. And I mean, it would make sense being from Oklahoma to have Cherokee. Yeah. Yeah. Florence was hospitalized in 1983 and she died on September 16th, 1983 of stroke, cancer and heart problems. Mm. Her gravestone reads Florence Leona Thompson, migrant mother, a legend of strength of American motherhood. Mm, Yeah. I mean, it is like. Like what, what's amazing about this photo, because I mean, we, we talked about how like, she's clearly lived a hard life. Like she looks older than her years, but there is this just, and it is somewhat in, you know, how the picture is composed and everything, but it does just project this sense of like, kind of that, what we think of as that like depression era sort of stoic. Yeah. Like we're just going to get by kind of strength. Yeah. I mean, and like the kids look dusty, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's very clear that this is not a posh woman who's fallen on hard times during the depression. It's very clear that this is a woman who has known hardship her entire life because she's had to work her entire life. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Ready for the next one? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's black and white photo. Clearly Uh I want to say New York, although it could be Chicago, I guess. And it's just a bunch of iron workers sitting on, uh, clearly in a skyscraper, like along a beam, just suspended over the city, just hanging out, probably eating lunch, I guess. Yep. This is lunch atop a skyscraper. The real, that's like what it is known as, but I guess the real title of this photo is New York construction workers lunching on a cross beam, which no wonder they changed the name of it. Cause that's a yes. mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue quite yeah yeah it was taken in 1932 it is probably one of the most recognizable photos ever it is on fucking everything yeah um and it depicts 11 men like scotty said eating lunch they're seated on a girder with mm-hmm. their feet appearing to dangle 840 feet above the streets of new york city mm-hmm. it I was mean, taken- it's terrifying i'm not it- even real afraid of heights and this makes no me- this <laughs> yeah this this photo like makes me deeply uncomfortable. It was taken on September 20th, 1932 on the 69th floor of the RCA building, which I believe is also known as 30 Rock. Mm, I think uh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not a candid photo. It was actually prearranged allegedly okay. by Rockefeller Center to promote its new skyscraper. Yeah. The men are actual iron workers, so there is that. They're not in front of a blue screen. But, like, of course they're iron workers because who the fuck else is going to be like, yeah, like, there's no model that's going to be like, yeah, man, throw me up there. Like, I'm ready to rock. Yeah, like $10 hazard bump or whatever. Oh, my God. Yes. OSHA doesn't exist. Like unions are barely a thing. So, but other pictures from that day, because it was part of like a whole shoot, other pictures from that day show the iron workers like throwing a football or like napping on the girder. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little much. Right. The photograph was published in the Sunday photo supplement of the New York Herald Tribune on October 2nd. Donia. Just went out her dog door in such an aggressive way that I'm certain she's trying to tell me something. Like, I don't, you don't need to be that. Well, I was watching her over your shoulder and she was looking annoyed. Like, if you have an issue with me, I need you to just tell me. (laughs) I 
don't need this kind of passive aggressive behavior from you. <laughs> God. Okay. So it was published in the Sunday photo supplement of the New York Herald Tribune on October 2nd, 1932. The photo was taken during the height of the depression mm-hmm. and it was used like the purpose of the photo was to do a, a few things. The first was to show the strength of the American labor force. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why like almost every fucking union office in the country has a print of this in it. Number two was to show the resiliency of the American people. And mm-hmm. number three was to show that steel was an integral part of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> steel town, USA. Right. The photographer was unknown, like was originally unknown for quite some time as were the men in the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often attributed to Lewis Hine, who I think took some famous photos of like the empire state building and like other okay. sort of New York Landmark. uh, landmarks, but it's actually believed that Charles C. Ebbets was the real photographer. And it seems like that was discovered in around 2003. Oh, okay. That's recent. Mm-hmm. Ebbets estate archives show the show original work orders, invoices to Rockefeller Center for the dates around the time that the photo was okay. taken, letters of recommendation from his work at Rockefeller Center for other jobs, mm. an original copy of the New York Herald Tribune in which the photograph was published, a negative of him at work on the site that day. And a 1932 picture of his office with the photo on a bulletin board. I mean, that seems pretty I mean, definitive. come on. <laughs> yeah, that that to me feels pretty definitive. Yeah. Ebbets was also working, I think, as a freelance photographer with Hamilton Wright Jr. Ad Agency, who had had been hired by Rockefeller Center to do the PR for the project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All all roads Um, seem to. All roads lead to Charles C. Ebbets. Yeah. Several attempts have been made to ID the men in the photo. The New York Post asked, have you seen these men in 2003? And of course, like hundreds of people responded. In 2012, Irish brothers, Sean and Eamon, oh, okay. (laughs) Okulane. <laughs> it's okay. an it's an I it's like the O with the accent and then C U A L A with the accent I N. So like just the most Irish Okulane. name that's yes. ever. Okay. Yes. But they those Sean and Eamon made a documentary called Men at Lunch where they try to identify the oh, men okay. in this photo. It is often said that the man in the center of the photo with the cigarette in his mouth is Peter. I, I left out a letter, but I believe it's Peter Rise. And he was a Mohawk iron worker, one of many. Apparently, there was a shit ton of Native American mm-hmm. iron workers that built well, the New I, York City skyline. I didn't know that. I think the Mohawk in particular were known for that. I, That's I think, fucking cool. Yeah, that, there's a whole story there. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do that on a future episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know why. I'm sorry. I'm yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're mad at me about it. <laughs> okay. Well then let's do that then. <laughs> so there are people who think that it is also thought that the men are like a combination of native and immigrant, mostly Irish or Swedish workers. Mm-hmm. The film does ID two men, Joseph Eckner. He's the third from the left and Joe Curtis, who is the third from the right. 
Okay. Um, there's stories of like, there's a dude at the far right who's holding a bottle who apparently some people think that he's uh, a Slavic man. And uh, there's a story that says that he like sent his wife a postcard that had the photo on the front. And it was like, don't worry about me. As you can see, I'm still holding the bottle, <laughs> you know? And it was like, love Goosty or something like that. Um, there's another story that says that I think the guy who is second from the left is a man from the Basque region of Spain. But again, like all of it is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's, that's who that is. But they're like, nobody can get anything. It's possible. very, yeah. yeah it's very speculative. Um, if you go into any article about this photo, the comments are all just people being like, my dad is in the middle with the cigarette. And then the yeah. next person is like, no, that's my dad in the middle with the cigarette. <laughs> So everybody's convinced that like it's their dad or their grandpappy or whatever. It's all, there's also a lot of weird, like there are native Americans in that photo. So that like smashes the story that it was all immigrant workers and like the other way around. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that, that's a, that's a weird, I don't know. That seems like a weird, like it was probably a mix. Yeah. Why do we need to fight about that? Yeah. Of all of these people who are probably also like, you know, paid really poorly and probably several of them died later on in their careers as they took like a misstep off of a girder, you know, mm -hmm. 96 stories into the sky. Right. Because um, they, they weren't cool... wearing safety harnesses and shit. No, fuck. No. Uh, like, again, like, I, you know, nobody cared about these guys. Nobody mm -hmm. cared what happened to them. They were disposable because there was another one right behind him to take that job. Right. Um, but it is a cool little, it is a cool little, sh like, slice of New York city life uh, mm -hmm. during the great depression. Yeah. And that's the true story behind some of the most iconic photographs ever taken. That's all that's I got cool. for today. Yeah. 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 Like I, like I said, most of these I'd seen, um, mm -hmm. I'm real excited about having been introduced to naked soldier guy in the airplane, naked gunner, man, like naked tack gunner, him man. up on your wall. Um, <laughs> and, it's and definitely kind of a thirst trap for sure. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, there are going to be just FYI guys, some of the like darker photographs, probably the most beautiful suicide and the falling man. I am not going to post on social media, mm -hmm. uh, just cause I don't want to surprise anybody in that. Those are the names of the photos. You can you... find them if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Go and find them. If you want, there's a documentary about the falling man. Mm hmm wherein they try to identify him. Uh, and like I said, you can go check out the article on codex99.com to read more about Evelyn McHale. But yeah, I'm 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 not going to post all of these. And if I do other series like this in the future, I'll probably do the same thing because some of the photographs are like, they're really hard. They're really hard yeah. to look at. I 100% will post the photo of the naked gunner and we'll see if Instagram censors it. <laughs> um i mean it's not boobies so probably won't. yeah 100 so they're probably going to be like yeah dude's ass is totally fine if it doesn't get censored i will lose it um <laughs> but we'll, we'll wait and see just real quick also wanted to mention there's a novel called falling man by don delillo that came out in 2007 Mm. That is, I believe, inspired by the photo. So there's also a performance artist who will go and like hang from like bridges and stuff in the pose of the phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I've heard about that. I feel a little weird about that. Yeah, that, that feels, it feels a little strange. Feels a little strange. Yeah. I don't want to say exploitive, but borderline, maybe. I don't, it just feels weird. Yeah. That's just what I'm going to say about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, to go along with your story, I decided to also do like an image-based 
yes. uh, story. So I only have three. We're going to do the same thing. I'm going to be sending the pictures to Amelia. She's going to be describing them. Okay. But I'm going to talk about three of the most famous, possibly haunted or cursed paintings. Oh, <laughs> mine was sad but yours is gonna be scary yeah so my sources i'm not gonna go through the same thing there's like a ton of them not gonna go through them all partly because i don't want to give like the titles of the paintings away okay but just so you know some of the places i looked you know wikipedia obviously a place called scoopwoop.com uh <laughs> horrornews.net Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting. These are some of my favorite websites, obviously. Yep. Um, YouTube, the BBC News, uh, cultofweird.com, Atlas okay. Obscura, and then a, a BBC radio show called Punt PI, which I'm going to talk about fairly okay. extensively. So, okay, first painting. Okay, hit me with it. Hold on. Are you back? Are you mad at me? I don't even know why you're mad at me. Okay, okay. you ready? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm, oh, I'm ready. Oh, I hate it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is what appears to be a man with a somewhat like shapeless face, mm-hmm. like just screaming into the void. It is, there's nothing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's nothing serene about this image. No. So he's sort of like done in rusts and yellows and he's against a a, kind of like a turquoise background. It all looks a little distressed. And yeah, just like eyes and mouth both sort of just like gaping black holes. Yeah. So this is The Anguished Man. Oh, yeah, that's a great title. So uh, the story behind this and and with all of these, by the way, I'm just I'm going to leave it to y'all to decide how credible you think these are i'm gonna editorialize as i go because i can't help myself but this is supposedly an oil painting that was created by an unknown artist that's owned by a guy named sean robinson in cumbria england ew somebody owns this Mm -hmm. like is it in their home yep so here's the story so robinson claims that he inherited this painting from his grandmother who had kept it in her attic for years and had told him that there was quote something evil about it yeah um the story that he was told by his grandmother he said is that the artist who again he claims is unknown Mm -hmm. um the artist had supposedly mixed his own blood into the paint before painting it why and then uh, shortly after finishing the painting, supposedly committed suicide. So again, trigger warning, suicide. Now, Robinson said that when he first got the painting, I think it was after his grandmother passed away, he put it down in his basement because his wife didn't like it. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> want that. If my husband, okay, if my husband brought that painting into our home, I would divorce him immediately. <laughs> Like, no, and not even any, can I put it in the basement or the attic? I'd be like, no, get that cursed painting out of my sight. Yeah. And while you're at it, I don't know if, some divorce papers on your way home. <laughs> I don't know that she threatened to divorce him, but she did definitely tell him to put it in the basement, which he did for quite a while, it sounds like. But mm-hmm. then the house got hit with a flood. So he took the painting and he ended up putting it in like the guest bedroom. Mm-hmm. And he said, once he moved it into the bedroom, that's when like strange shit started happening. 
So he okay. has claimed that it's haunted. He claims that his grandmother also said it was haunted. Okay. He, he uh, has uploaded a bunch of videos to YouTube, and I'll talk about that here in just a second. Okay. Where he's like filmed the painting, trying to what? find like weird stuff happening. Okay. So he has said, here's just some of the claims that he said about it. And this is like, a lot of this is from his own YouTube channel, which is called The Anguished Man, if you want to go okay. watch these videos. <laughs> Um, he says that his family has seen a quote figure of a man ever since he inherited the painting. He said that his grandmother had also seen this figure of this man as well in her house. He said that once they put it up in their guest bedroom, they've heard strange whispers and crying like in the vicinity of the painting. No. He has said that he has woken up on several nights and seen a faceless figure standing at the foot of his bed. And then he said his wife woke up to find a, quote, stranger laying in the bed next to her. What? No. Uh-uh. And uh-uh. The, and, and then I don't the story, care. I don't care yeah. where that painting comes from. I, that is like mal ojo all over the place. <laughs> like, you've got to do a fucking limpia. Like, no. Yeah. I hate it. I hate its guts. The, this is when the divorce papers, I think. <laughs> might have popped up the article just said she was quote traumatized by this yeah and what i couldn't find was like was this figure was there like an actual stranger had broken into their house and gotten into bed with her or was it like this mysterious figure they kept seeing he's also said and has supposedly documented with these videos and i've watched a bunch of the videos he has supposedly documented these like light anomalies like lights flitting around the painting now i'm gonna say i watched the video looks pretty fake to me Okay. But that's just me. He said he has felt a strange presence around the painting and that right after he recorded one of his videos, his son fell down the stairs. And he said Mm. that his son, (laughs) yeah, was unhurt, but then told his dad that it, quote, felt like someone had pushed him. Mm. Um, And then in what I think was the most recent video is from 2017. It's Robinson himself, and he's talking to the camera. He says he has heard, quote, very loud noises in the bedroom when the painting is kept. And when he went in to investigate, he couldn't identify the source of the noises. Get rid of the painting, dude. So, well, I'm going to get to that. (laughs) So it's been investigated by a number of paranormal TV shows and other investigators. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was a guy named Mike St. Clair and on some Discovery Channel show, he claimed the whole thing is a hoax. Okay. And I didn't look into that too deeply, so I'm not sure what the basis of his claims are. Okay. But it is often mentioned as being one of the top five most haunted objects in the world. So they put it with the Dybbuk box, which someday I'm going to do that story. Uh-huh. Uh, also the Annabelle doll, if you guys have seen uh, mm. the Annabelle movies. Mm-hmm. Robert the doll, which is supposed no. to be the basis of Chucky. No, that doll is fucked. Yeah, it's. I should just do like a haunted things episode at some point. Talk about Robert the doll and Annabelle. And then, of course, the chair of death. Okay, that one I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, at one point, there was a listing on eBay had popped up and said that it was on sale for 1,500 pounds. But then Robinson immediately, like, I think in an article, he gave an interview and he said this was not true. And he said, quote, all other paintings appearing for sale online, which claim to be the English man are frauds and no one should buy those. I can guarantee you that the original haunted painting is locked away in a secure location and I have no intentions of selling it. That could be dangerous, and it would not be wise for anyone to lay their hands on the painting because it really is active, and really strange things happen for people who are in the same room or even in the same house with the painting. What? So that's from Dread Central. Now, here's where I start getting suspicious. Mm -hmm. So it became very popular with, like, 
creepypasta culture. We talked about creepypastas with the Black Eyed Children. Robinson is definitely kind of milked it. And like when he watches videos, it's like super spooky music over like just Mm -hmm. like a still shot of the or to like slowly (laughs) zoom in on the painting. And I'm like, okay. supposedly he actually sold the film rights to a company called La Brea Pictures around 2016. They were going to be making a film called Anguished. It was going to be directed by an American slash Finnish filmmaker named Till Ricks. Robinson himself was listed as the associate producer and then said he was considering taking the painting around to like paranormal conventions. But he did say, well, if I bring the painting, I wouldn't recommend touching the painting. Okay. Okay. Um, Now, I couldn't find anything else about the movie, so I don't think it was ever made. There is another Mm -hmm. film called Anguish, but it came out in 2015. I read the plot description. It doesn't, it's a horror movie, but it doesn't seem like it's related. Okay. Honestly, the whole thing sounds like a creepypasta to me. Okay. Okay. Like the more I, the more I dug into it, and and particularly him being like, I have it locked in a secure location because (laughs) it would be dangerous. Meanwhile, uh, sign up for my conviction appearance. I will be at HorrorCon. Exactly. So I don't know. I don't know. Don't want to call the guy a liar. I don't know him. I could be wrong. Allegedly. 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 We have had no look. The official stance of the weirdest weirdest thing podcast is that we have not had physical contact with the painting. (laughs) So we cannot state for sure. We can Um, say that Amelia had a fairly violent reaction to looking at it. I hated it. Yeah. It just is. It's awful. Yeah, it's, it's awful. It's pretty creepy. It's a creepy painting. Yeah. If somebody again, if somebody showed up at my, could you imagine? Could you imagine if you're like, I've just moved into my new house and I'm having a housewarming party, and someone brought that to you in mm-hmm. fucking like ring, I mean, ringu video fashion to be like here. I mean, no lie, like I would 100% like hang a print of that in my house. But I mean, I'm the horror guy. Like, of course. Yes. I would, you know? But can you imagine, like, the actual painting and they were just like passing it off to you? Yeah. Haunted AF? I don't know that I, I'm superstitious enough that I like, give me just like a poster and I'm good. Yeah. Put it on a t shirt, I'm fine. If you got it, we could call the what is it the ghost adventures dudes to mm-hmm. come and, and check it out i mean i think the like i don't know if ghost adventures specifically but i know like a bunch of different paranormal like shows and stuff and right supposedly investigated the painting i haven't looked that deeply into it i'm curious now the other thing that makes me suspicious frankly is this thing about like it's an unknown artist yeah but then he's saying supposedly the artist mixed his own blood into the paint and then yeah killed how do you know this if he's unknown how would you know that so it just it feels mm, real yeah. convenient. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um again, I'm gonna shade this Sean Robinson guy a little bit, but like some of his videos, he just looks like super goth dude. Like he's very like Anton LaVey with the like dark goatee yeah. and the bald head and yeah, say no more. Um so I'm I don't I don't necessarily buy it. Okay, yeah. moving on to the next one. Oh, okay, I'm ready. This one is one of the more famous ones of recent years. <gasps> I uh, still not a fan, huh? No, I mean, even before I zoomed in on it, I wasn't a fan because these kids look creepy AF. <laughs> Are they even children? Well, okay. let's talk about it. This, this, okay. So this is a painting called The Hands Resist Him. And this is okay. the famous eBay haunted painting. Okay, do you want me to do 2000s. a description? Yeah. Okay, so what we see is it looks to be like, I don't know, no, it looks like standing in front of a doorway, Mm -hmm. and there are two figures. One appears to be 
appears to be a human boy mm-hmm. who looks like you're kind of like run-of-the-mill American wasp mm-hmm. <laughs> child. It's a white boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's wearing like a light, like turquoise shirt and he's got little shorts on and he's got socks and I don't what are they like little booties or something on them. Mm-hmm. And then standing next to him is what at first glance appeared to be a girl child, but mm-hmm. she's got like the articulated joints of like a doll. Mm-hmm. And it looks like her jaw is also articulated so it can open and close and her eyes are just black. So she looks like a very large doll standing mm-hmm. next to him. And she's holding, I don't know what the hell she's holding, a bomb. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. But they're standing in front of a large door that is like a glass door. And then whatever's behind them is completely dark, but you can see like hands on mm-hmm. like on the panes of glass. And then a moon, a thumbnail moon is reflected in there. Yeah, the hands are really I hate it. I hate it here. Yeah. It's a creepy ass picture. And one thing I always want to point out, like what I think is the creepiest about this picture mm-hmm. is actually the little boy. Cause yeah, like he looks very like Norman Rockwell, but then he's got this weird blank old man face almost. Yeah. Like, like I mean, he's got a super tall forehead, which like no judgment, but he's got like a five head. It's like and... a Frankenstein's monster for it. Like Boris. Carlin. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And he's got like what appears to be blonde hair and you can't quite see his eyes like they're kind of in shadow, but it looks like he's staring at you. Mm-hmm. very intently and then just like the rest of his face is kind of blank but it's like this oddly angular face yeah it doesn't quite look right for a little boy mm-hmm. okay so here's the story it's called the hands resistant so it's an actual like whereas the last one the anguished man like no one knows who created mm-hmm. the painting i'm looking at you sean robinson but this one is actually we know who the artist was it was created by a guy named bill stoneham in 1972 Okay. So like you said, it depicts a young boy and a life-size female doll standing in front of a glass panel door. And then a bunch of hands are seen pushing against the other side of the glass. Mm-hmm. Stoneham has said that the boy is actually based on a picture of himself from when he was five years old. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. So he first displayed the painting at the Fine Garden Gallery in Beverly Hills in the early 1970s. And it was it was like a solo show. So he was like a big enough name artist, I think. Yeah. He got this solo show and actually was able to even get like a reviewer from the New York Times or not the New York Times, the LA Times to come and write a review of the show. So mm-hmm. put a pin in that because I'll get okay. back to that. Okay. It was then purchased, I think, from this gallery by an actor named John Marley. So Marley will be most famous to all you film geeks as the guy who played the film mogul in The Godfather, who wakes up to find the horse's head in bed with Yep. Him. Okay. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Marley had the painting for a while. Uh, and then he passed away. I forgot to write down when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, no one knows quite what happened to the painting. And then there was a strange listing on eBay in February of 2000, supposedly from an elderly couple in California. So I'm going to just read the listing to you. This is from eBay in 2000. Okay. It's- First off, before you even read the description, I'm already skeptical because I have a hard time believing that an elderly couple in the year 2000 would be able to navigate eBay. Mm-hmm. Continue. Okay. <laughs> that, that's fair point. Fair <laughs> point. Well, and one thing, it is written in all caps, which is weird. So it's like they got the caps locks. <laughs> okay. N- on. Never mind. It is 100% an elderly couple. <laughs> yeah. Circa um, 2000. And, and I think it was written by the wife. And it okay. says, supposedly. Allegedly. When we received this painting, we thought it was really good art. 
a quote picker had found it abandoned behind an old brewery at the time we wondered a little why a seemingly fine painting would be discarded like that and then in parentheses today we don't three exclamation points <laughs> okay <laughs> one morning our four and a half year old daughter i think it was uh supposed to be granddaughter i might have mistyped it four and a half year old granddaughter claimed that the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night now i don't believe in ufos or elvis being alive but my husband was alarmed to my amusement he set up a motion triggered camera for the nights after three nights there were pictures the last two pictures shown are from the quote stakeout after seeing the boy seemingly exiting the painting under threat we what? decided the painting has to go please judge for yourself before you do please read the following warning and disclaimer and then the disclaimer is basically like we absolve ourselves of all responsibility if you buy this thing and it's what fucks up your life and is fucking creepy what did are the pictures from the ebay posting can you find those no you cannot i could <sighs> not find the like i found it like this was quoted in an article but like i remember seeing that ebay posting at the time because uh -huh. i remember at the time it, it was like one of the first things i remember that kind of turned into like a viral thing okay so i saw it like at the time but like you cannot find it anymore and i couldn't find what? it archived so the supposedly the threat that she's talking about the reason why the boy in the painting would like leave the painting is that the female doll is like what she's holding in her hand is a gun that she's pointing at the boy so she also said that she warned any purchasers not to show the painting to children, saying that it would cause extreme reactions, violent illness, screaming, and a feeling of being gripped by, quote, an unseen entity. What? So the story went viral. Okay. Like I said, I, I saw it. I remember mm -hmm. I was in, I was, it would have been my senior year of college. I remember seeing it when I was in college because I, I might have even fucking bid on it. Like, I don't. Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course I did. Yeah. Um, it ended up within about 10 days uh, by February 11th, 2000. It had been viewed 13,000 times. And then people who were looking at the listing started posting saying that they would look at it and would like suddenly feel faint or would suddenly get violently ill just from looking at the eBay posting. Oh, great. And now you made me look at it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, take, take, Ugh. take an Alka-Seltzer or something. Um, <sighs> the painting ultimately was sold to an anonymous buyer for a thousand dollars and $1,025. So then the following month on March 12th, the buyer gave an interview where they said they had experienced nothing strange since buying okay, the painting. Okay. They said, this is the quote. It says, I wish I could report a bizarre happening or mind possession type of thing, but the unusual thing started happening with the first email and counting prayers and quotes from the scriptures from a man of faith advice, how to cleanse my residents of this evil thing from a native American shaman, Mississippi. Reports of people being repulsed, made physically ill, or suffering from a blackout mind control experiences. I've been informed that over 34,000 people on eBay alone have viewed this item. People want to know how I can live with this sort of, quote, thing, or want to buy a life-size reproduction. If anything, this is the real story. And I think the real story is, like, nothing happened. Right. And, like, y'all are the ones that are being fucking weird about it. Mm -hmm. like, but the story continued to spread, and, of course, it became a very popular creepypasta. Of course. And so it started to spread through, like, creepypasta world. Its popularity continues even today. There's one YouTube video, which I watched about it. There's just, like, kind of a slideshow that sort of, I think, quotes the... Okay. Okay. original listing but it's been watched 2.2 million times what so the original buyer was later revealed to be i, I think the buyer who said like nothing weird happened mm -hmm. was later revealed to be perception gallery 
in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They actually reached out to Bill Stoneham and told him the story. He had no idea that this was going on about his painting. What? So this is what Bill Stoneham has to say about it. Okay. He says, where to begin? Well, I've always had a connection to what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. I think we all do. Artists, especially visual artists, are barometers for the currents which run through this collective. Dreams are a common experience people may have with this. Anyway, my own experience is a sensitivity to place, physical, geographical place. There are memories, echoes of all the life within a place. Maybe it's what's called channeling. When I painted The Hands Resist Him in 1972, I used an old photo of myself at age five in a Chicago apartment. The hands are the, quote, other lives. The glass door, that thin veil between waking and dreaming. The girl doll is the imagined companion or guide through this realm. Does he want to talk about what's in her hands? Yes. He says that it's not a gun. Okay, great. She's actually holding a dry cell battery with a tangle of wires. And I don't know what the battery is supposed to represent. Right. Okay, because I was like, it doesn't look like a gun. Well, I think the reason why people say it's a gun, if you look, because, you know, it's this glass door that's got the, like, panels. It's Mm -hmm. like a paneled glass door. Mm -hmm. And I think she's holding the battery, and then one of the, like, cross beams for the panels is kind of going across it. So it almost looks like the barrel of a gun if you, like, really squint and look at it. honestly looks like if she's holding a hairdryer by like the barrel of the hairdryer right. instead of the handle. That's it, honestly what it looks I like. I never would have thought it looked like a gun person. No, it, I mean, on a, it kind of looks like a can of spray paint with like some wires sticking up out of it. Right, right, right. But that bitch is creepy as hell. Yeah. Her face is creeptastic. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a creepy ass. Like whether yeah. it's haunted or not, it's a creepy ass. Like I love the painting. I kind of want to, I do kind of want a poster of it for my house. Mm-hmm. Of course you do. Yeah, you look kind of judgy when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Stoneham says he doesn't know how it ended up on eBay. The last he had heard of it, it had sold to that actor. But he did sort of offer up this little tidbit. He said, well, I do know that the original owner of that art gallery, the one in Beverly Hills, and then the LA Times critic who came and reviewed the show, they both died within the year. What? So he just kind of threw that out there as like, I don't know. Oh, by the way, yeah. yeah. Come see my next show at. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I think that's kind of cool about this, though, is like Stoneham, he's still an artist. He's still doing his thing. And he got kind of rediscovered because of this painting. So he's actually gone on to create a series. Like the the Hands Resist Him is the first in a series. He followed it up with a painting called Resistance at the Threshold. And it shows the same characters, but 40 years later. Ew. He, yeah I'm sorry <laughs> he followed that up with threshold of revelation in 2012 mm-hmm. and then the hands invented and then the final was just finished this year 2021 it's called what remains and it shows the original setting as being deteriorated and like scattered with debris from the earlier lives and stories so i think it's interesting yeah yeah so it's like that that door that you know that chicago right door and then i believe it's that or, or well it wouldn't have been that one because that's the um that one was just this year i think it was the one uh the hands of ventum mm-hmm. oh yeah the hands of ventum is considered like a prequel to the hands resist him okay. and it shows stoneham as a young boy who's actually behind the painting's door holding a paintbrush mm, um okay that painting was sold to in march of 2017 to the haunted museum in las vegas what and, yeah road trip <laughs> right <laughs> right 100 percent. yeah of course <laughs> haunted museum to- if you'd like to throw us some tickets yeah. we'd love to come and visit you yeah drive up and check out area 51 too there's supposed to be that like cool diner right by area 51 yeah 
okay. Now, all three can be found on Stoneham's website. And I meant to write down his website address, and I totally did not put it in my notes. So mm-hmm. I will include it with the show notes. Great. Um, so you guys can check it out. Okay. Um, okay. Last is probably the most famous. Okay. <sighs> oh, man. Okay. okay all right this is a portrait Mm -hmm. of a small child i mean i'd if i had to guess i'd say anywhere between like two and five years old yeah i can't tell if it's a boy or a girl it's done in like i don't know it's like warmly lit but the child is sort of like looking over their shoulder eyes big and very obvious large fat tears are rolling down the child's face and their little mouth is kind of like downturned and a little like meh face yeah so this is called the crying boy okay and there's actually a bunch of different variations of it Okay. So it's a series of mass-produced paintings painted by a Venetian painter named Giovanni Bragolin. Okay. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about who he is or was here in a little bit. These paintings were widely available in stores, like department stores and stuff, throughout the 1950s up through the 1970s. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. So each of these paintings features a different crying child. They're usually looking straight ahead or maybe, like you said, a little bit over their shoulder, Mm -hmm. often with a tear on his cheeks. They're usually, Mm -hmm. like you said, like between two and five years old. And these were like extremely popular. Like your grandparents might have had these in their house. I feel like we might have had one of these in the house. What's what's the dude's name? Giovanni Bragolin. And he would sign them very ostentatiously. Bragolin. Okay, I'm trying to look him up a little bit, see if I can. Okay, continue. So, like I said, these are very popular paintings, but then it became kind of a sensation in 1985 when the British tabloid The Sun put out a story that a firefighter in Essex had claimed that they kept finding undamaged copies of the paintings in the ruins of burnt houses. What? Yeah. So here's the story. He said all the fires seemed to have started spontaneously. Like they couldn't find a source, like an ignition source. And he also said, and then the Sun published dozens of stories about this. Okay. It, and it became like a thing. And it escalated to the point where actually the Sun organized like public bonfires where people could send them their crying boy paintings and then they would burn them in these huge bonfires. Because oh, it, you man. know, the story kind of spread that this is cursed and this painting is gonna burn your house down. Right. Now the sun, I don't know. Is- the sun i mean well uh, and we'll get to like and i think particularly the sun of that time was like a step or two removed maybe from the weekly world news mm-hmm. but it's like kind of britain's like national Enquirer. yeah so so this is from atlas obscura it says the legend of the crying boy painting seems to have begun with the sun fueled by the obscurity of the crying boy paintings artist the artworks bear the prominent signature of one giovanni bragolin but for quite some time no one could find information about the man rumors abounded that he had painted hundreds of crying children many of them street urchins in either italy or spain okay so i mentioned this bbc radio show that mm-hmm. um was called punt pi it's hosted by a british comedian a guy named steve punt okay and he basically tried to like it's it's a half hour episode he basically did like an investigation trying to find the truth behind okay. this story and it, it's it's a lot of fun he has a lot of fun with it we'll just yes. I'll say that okay. <laughs> okay um but so it's he starts off he was trying to find some of the people whose houses supposedly burned down Okay. And he called and called and called and couldn't find anybody. But he finally managed to track down a woman named Jane McCutcheon from Nottingham, who had owned a copy of the painting in the early 1980s. McCutcheon told Punt that she'd bought the painting because she thought it was, quote, beautiful and had the most gorgeous face. 
And she said she ultimately hung it above the fire in the lounge. I assume that means above the fireplace. Uh-huh. Just she just got an open fire yeah. in the middle of her. Okay. I'm like, well, maybe that's why your house burned down. Right, saying. bitch. Maybe that's why your house burned down because yeah. you didn't practice fire safety. Question real fast. It is specifically this picture and not think, any of the other. I think ones. any of the variations. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, or supposedly. Yeah, cursed. the quick Google image search brought up like a thousand sets. There's, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of them, and and it's not clear. So I picked one to send you. Okay, this was the one I think is on the Wikipedia page. Okay, but I've seen pictures. There's uh, online you can find like screen shots and screenshot photographs mm-hmm. of some of the original sun articles and they actually show a couple different variations okay okay yeah so like i said she this jane mccutcheon she had hung it above the fire in the lounge and then in may of 1982 she said she was cleaning her kitchen floor her two young children were in the lounge and i assume by lounge she's meaning like den or living room mm-hmm. she's she's english she's british mm-hmm. um and they were watching television and then while jane was cleaning her kitchen floor her two-year-old daughter wandered in kind of trying to get her attention and she said her girl like wasn't good at talking at this point you know, she's okay old. right so jane followed her back into the lounge where she saw a fire that i guess she must have had a fire going in the fireplace uh-huh. but it had leapt out from beyond the fireplace and it was like the living room was ablaze and she said her couch burned her curtains burned her blinds melted what? like it was she described it as an inferno okay so she managed to get her kids out of the house no one was injured okay. um but the damage to the lounge was terrible she said but the painting was completely undamaged what? And she said, you could still see the little boy's face in the picture. No. And then no. she said, when the firefighters arrived, one of the firemen saw the painting and said, quote, oh, no, not another. One. No. <laughs> no. Uh, she said that she had had several strange incidents in the years after the fire. She was very coy about it. Like she she basically told the Steve Punch. She was like, I don't really want to say what they were on air, but they were bad. Like she said, quote, something did happen to me and it was very frightening. And then Punt asked her, would you have the crying boy painting in your house again? And she was like, right away, she was like, no, only a fool would do that. I wish I had never bought the picture. Oh, my. Okay. All right. So she's a believer. Yeah. Time out because I've got to turn on some lights and stuff. You keep doing this to me. I don't like it (laughs) when you do scary stories at the end after it's dark. And then I have to go around and like shut all my doors and windows and stuff. Just saying (laughs) it for future episodes. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Okay. I'm back. All right. So yeah, like I said, she's a true believer. Yeah. So Steve Punt then decided I need to get my hands on one of these crying boy paintings. Okay. Well, unfortunately, they're really hard to find now because everyone started burning them. In right. The right. Everybody's like, get these fucking scary yeah. boy child pictures out of my house. So he started, he was calling thrift stores, art foundations, you know, could not find one, but he finally managed to get a hold of someone who was selling two of them on eBay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the person happened to be over in London's East End. So Punt took the train and he has like a lot of fun on his show where he's like, as I was going over there, I started one. is this a good idea? And like, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, like you definitely was like milking it for the radio right, show. Right, right, right. And he was like, what am I going to find when I get there? And then he gets there. He's like, and I found a really nice man who's selling some paintings. <laughs> and he actually talked to the guy a little bit. And he asked him, why were you wanting to sell these? And the guy said that, well, one of his daughters refused to stay in the house if he had them hung up. He said he had bought them years ago, had them hung up for only a couple of weeks. And his daughter was like, fuck this. He said, so then he had them hung up for a long time, but turned facing the wall. Um, and then finally was like, I just need to get rid of these paintings. So he was selling them. Steve Pump bought them. He took the pictures and then he has a lot of fun where he's like, got them in his bag. So he's carrying them on the uh -huh. subway or the bus or whatever. And like, no one knows what he has. He's like, I wonder what the people would think if they knew I had this cursed painting. And, you know, he took them over to the White Cube Gallery in East London. And apparently the White Cube Gallery is like known for what it said on the, I didn't look up who the artists were that they show, but they're known for exhibiting the on font terrible artists of Britain. Okay. So like, you know, okay. the, the edgy artists. Right. Know? And he took it to their director of exhibitions, a guy named Tim Marlowe, to show him the painting and to mm -hmm. see if he could get any more information on it. And Marlowe, his interview is a lot of fun because he's he's just like a real snotty art guy. And so he like awesome. looks, he's like, mm, this is fantastic. Like very. <laughs> mm. And then he's like, I had forgotten how mawkish and kitsch these paintings were. <laughs> And then he says, it begs the question why you would even want to have an image of a crying child in your house. I mean, and, it kind of does. Yeah, it, it really. I mean, that's fair point. Yes. Um, but then, you know, he talks a little bit about sort of the aesthetic value or not of the paintings. I didn't mm -hmm. write any of that down because I was like, okay, snotty art guy. I, we get it. Right. But then he went into a little bit of the history of the artist. So this Giovanni Bragolin, his real name was Bruno Amadio. He okay. was born November 9th, 1911 in either Seville, Spain or Venice, Italy. I've seen various sources. Some said he was born in Spain and then went to Venice to study okay. art. Okay. Others said he was born in Italy, but was like Spanish descent. Mm. Um, I don't know. There's really not much known about him, but he ended up dying uh, in 1981 in Padua. He was an academically trained artist. He made his career in post-war Venice as a painter and an art restorer, and he produced at least 65 different variations of this crying boy mostly for tourists and then the tourists would take the paintings and they became so popular that people started mass producing them and of course Bragolin didn't see any of the royalties for this they're just they basically stole his painting and so all the paintings are buying in department stores is like not like he's not selling them. he had like painted it and sold it to some tourists who then took a photo of it and sold it to. oh man yeah. okay yeah that's why it's cursed yeah well, maybe. pay artists for their work you <laughs> exactly. know what i'm saying yeah. artwork is work bitches okay yeah um, second rant over <laughs> it does sound like this bruno amadio had a fairly successful career as an artist though he was painting up at least into the 1970s okay. um and then passed away in 1981 and like i said not a whole lot more is known about him so of course when there's a vacuum of information we like to fill it with a bunch of urban legends right yes so here's some of the urban legends about these paintings so one of the stories is that the model for at least one of the paintings and i don't know which one Mm -hmm. was a street urchin in 1969 named Don Bonilla. He was a Spanish boy who supposedly had accidentally started a fire back in Spain in which his parents were killed. <gasps> And then as the story went, fire seemed to follow him, like wherever he the would go yes. um, to the point, And they would like just break out around him for like no discernible reason Ugh. to the point where people were afraid of him and started calling him Diablo. 
So according to at least one of these stories, Bragolin had actually adopted the orphan boy against the will of the local priest and then proceeded to abuse the boy. <laughs> okay. Again, urban legend. Urban legend. <laughs> right, 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 right. Allegedly. Right. And then, according to the story, a few years later, there was a fiery car crash where a car just randomly exploded. And okay. the driver, who was a 19-year-old man, was found burned beyond recognition. But mm-hmm. when the firefighters investigated the glove box, they found that his ID was in the glove box, and it was Don Bonillo. So the young fire starter boy. And then they opened up the trunk, and there was a painting of him as a child <laughs> in the trunk. Completely, completely undamaged. <laughs> yes. I mean, someone needs to add that to the story. So We just Steve- did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve Punt was like, I wanted to investigate this further. So I decided to track down some specialists. And he's like definitely being a little bit tongue in cheek about this. So his specialists were a pagan exorcist and Wiccan high priest named Sir Ralph Harvey. Okay. And then the Sir Ralph Harvey's friend, a quote, psychic medium named Annie Mills. And then okay. he ha- he actually has the interview with them in his radio show where Mills, like, she's like, I don't want to look at the picture. I just want to put my hands above it. And she's like, oh, there's an energy. I'm feeling like a dark energy coming off of this. Okay. And then she claimed, she's like, I'm hearing the name Thomas. It's being called like very loudly, very clearly the name Thomas. Mm-hmm. And she went on to say, there's not a lot of wealth here, not a lot of loving, not a lot of comfort. What I'm being gifted through the spirit and through my own inner feeling is that he was seen as a devil child. She continued that she, quote, saw intense fire coming from him and said, I do believe this child was a fire starter. So that mirrors like the story, like pretty closely. It does. Which would be really impressive if it wasn't already a very well-known story. Very true. Like she could have literally Googled it before. <laughs> so I'm like, just like I said, I'll leave it to you all to decide. Yes. She continued to say that she thought the boy did not have a long life and that he mm. probably had died in a fire. And then she and Harvey both said they offered to like cleanse the painting, but that they would need a few days to do it. Mm-hmm. And Steve Punt was like, nah, I don't have that kind of time. So he just took the painting and left. <laughs> nah, thanks though. Nah, thanks. I'm good. And then there's another urban legend about. So that the whole thing with Don Bonillo and everything is like, that's the main urban legend that has mm-hmm. been sort of circulating. I think an earlier urban legend about it was that Bragolin had actually fled to Spain at the end of World War II, or this, uh, what was his real name? Uh, Bruno Amadio, and ended up doing a series of paintings in an orphanage. Okay. And then according to the story, the orphanage actually burned down and killed many of the children. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, allegedly. Allegedly. So then Punt, Steve Punt, he went to talk to the Sun's editor at the time. Because you remember the whole thing started with this series of right, right, articles right, right, in the right. Sun. So I went and talked to this guy, Kelvin McKenzie. And McKenzie, like he shows up and McKenzie's like laughing, but he's like, you can't bring those paintings into the house. Like, <laughs> he's like, no, it's too dangerous. I don't want them in my house. Like, well, here, let's put them on the porch. But he's clearly what? like he's laughing as he says it. Okay, so it's like okay. the guy, the guy kind of knows. And then he tells the story of how it kind of turned into a thing at the sun. He says mm-hmm. it originally came out of a news agency, the story about this fire and this painting that survived, and the fireman being quoted saying that they had seen this painting over and over and over again, mm-hmm. unscathed in all these burnt houses. Mm-hmm. So that didn't start at the sun. It started with like their version of what we would call like the Associated Press. Okay. And then, but then McKinsey said, suddenly the light bulb goes on. Hello, this is a story. <laughs> 
and so you know they ran these dozens of articles that built to them like saying send us your crying boy pictures and we'll burn them for you and of course okay. these big bonfires like public is the whole thing right and his is what he said he said we felt we were doing sun readers a good turn by saying look let us try and stop your house from burning down <laughs> why don't you send to us all your crying boy pictures and we will have a bonfire we run this, taps into the psyche, the readers become a part of it, and we literally got swamped in crying boy pictures. He said he himself personally was so superstitious that he wouldn't hang any of them in the son's offices because he, quote, didn't want to burn the bloody building down. Uh, yeah. Fair. That tracks. Um, but then he says, like, you know, they never got to the bottom of the story or, like, how true any of this was. They never tracked down the original firefighter or any of that. What he said was, like, well, if you over-research some stories, they kind of fall apart. And he said, quote, some stories are just too good to check. <laughs> <laughs> it was great fun and everybody was joining in on it. So, again, the National Enquirer. Right, 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 right. World news. right. Yep. <laughs> so Punt was like, cool, didn't really tell us much about the veracity of this. Mm -hmm. So he then took the paintings to a fire safety expert, a guy named Martin Ship, and they decided to partake in some controlled burns. Okay. of the paintings so they took them into an actual laboratory they started with what was quote the match test where basically this martin ship held a long match to the painting just to see if it would damage and he said nothing happened like they held a match up to the painting and it didn't burn okay. so then they introduced like more flame to it they basically started burning it from the bottom and they said it created a two foot high flame that was going up above the painting like uh-huh across the surface of the painting and while punt said that the bottom of the painting burned and actually there was like a hole where you could see the flame had touched it the figure of the boy itself didn't burn okay so that's weird so here's what this martin ship had to say he he basically said well i think it's coated in like a flame resistant varnish which is yeah 100 possible and so then they said well let's try another test so basically these most of these paintings were hung by like a string mm -hmm. and he said well let's see what happens if we put a match to this string the string immediately burned so he said here's what i think is going on with this painting he said basically the painting is hanging on a wall in a house the house catches fire there's this flame resistant varnish over mm -hmm. it which is protecting it the string burns the painting falls falls face first to the floor and that protects it Okay. So that's the scientific explanation that he's off. But you can tell even he's kind of like, I don't know. It's like, maybe this is what's happening. Right. Um, but then wouldn't that apply to like all pictures hanging from a string? So why wouldn't there be other pictures in these houses? Why is it only this one that's being found, supposedly? <sighs> and, and the answer is we don't really actually know that that's true. Like there right. could have been other pictures right right found. we also don't know how many times like a house burned down that had a crying boy painting in it and the painting burned and because obviously right. you can't identify it it's burned so <laughs> you know and, yes. and so basically what punt was sort of like punt clearly kind of ends with like leaning towards the scientific explanation mm -hmm. and he's basically like the crying boy painting was so popular so ubiquitous at this time mm -hmm. that almost every house had it so statistically it would make sense that this painting would pop up in more houses that had mm -hmm. house fires. And if it was on top of that, these reproductions have been treated with this flame resistant varnish. Mm -hmm. It would stand to reason that some of them would survive. 
Yeah. He also went and talked to someone named Dr. David Clark at Sheffield University, basically wanting to try and like not just depend on the pagan exorcist and the psychic medium, but actually see if we can track down the story of Don Bonillo. And this is what David Clark says. He says, no matter how much you try to trace its origins, you just end up in a fog. He says, Mm -hmm. as far as I was able to ascertain, the narrative story can only be traced back as far as 2000 when this first appeared in printed form. The original story was uncovered by a well-respected researcher into occult matters who is a retired schoolmaster from Devon named George Mallory. Now I've done what I can to find this person. And as far as I can see, there is no such person. Your guess is as good as mine. Who's George Mallory? Please come forward. So basically he's basically saying like, this goes back to 2000 and it's probably more internet bullshit. Okay. Yeah. So punt kind of ends on this note of like, yeah, it's probably, you know, flame-resistant varnish. It was very popular painting, so it was in a lot of houses. But we don't really know. It's, like, inconclusive. There's no way to really track the veracity of these stories from the Right. 80s, you know? I mean, yeah. the fact that it's in the sun makes it, like, eh, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it definitely it did... tarnishes the believability of it. Right. But it did start at a news agency, not at the sun. Like, the sun definitely ran with it. Right. But this was apparently something firefighters were saying. And if you go back to Jane McCutcheon's story, her right. story is from 1982. That's three years before the Sun series. And it, and she said that the firefighter even then was like, oh, no, not another one. So if I'm to do a believability scale on each okay. of these, I'm okay. saying the anguished man, that's like mm-hmm. a 1.5. Like, okay. That's a creepy pasta. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The hands resist them. I'm going to be a little more generous that there might be something weird about that one. Okay. Like maybe this elderly couple who listed on eBay were real. Who knows? Mm-hmm. The caps lock seems to suggest that it right. was in fact, elderly, an elderly couple. Yeah. People who don't know how computers work. So let's call that a three. Okay. And then I would say the crying boy, I wouldn't go any higher than a four, but I might go up to a four. Okay. On that one. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's the story of some of the most famous haunted and like, there's obviously like a ton of haunted paintings and I could have gone into like classical paintings and stuff, but these were, I like these weird creepypasta borderline tabloidy kind of stuff. Yeah, urban legendy type yeah. things. Yeah. A little more right. contemporary. Yeah. Well, awesome. Terrifying. Uh don't pick up any paintings from the back of breweries or at your local thrift stop shop. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Don't well, buy thrift and shop I will say art. like it's creepy. I will say like I 100% wanted a print of the hands resistant and I still mm-hmm. kind of do. I will not get a like I've already had a house burned down. I don't need to f- fucking True. fuck with the face yeah. with that no. so i no, do no, no, not no, no. want a crying boy in fact i'll probably delete all these images off of my computer <laughs> exactly immediately done. dump it dump it right yeah. now me too same yeah um oh my god yeah all right well done what a spooky story <laughs> fantastic okay so that's our that's our that's our image episode yeah uh, well, i hope you guys are doing okay we're yeah. surviving over here again as always go out get vaccinated yep <laughs> For sure, do. For, for sure, forever and always get vaccinated. Stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.